0: Base here. Landed. Welcome to a history of the Space Race podcast, episode 36, The Spirit of 7-6. We ended the last episode with the cancellation of the Gemini 6 mission. NASA's plan had been to launch an Agena spacecraft on top of an Atlas rocket on October 25, 1965. Within minutes of this launch, Gemini 6 was to launch as well, and follow the Agena into space and attempt a rendezvous. But after the Atlas rocket put the Agena into space, the Agena spacecraft exploded. As a result, NASA scrubbed the Gemini 6 mission. The loss of the Agena and the cancellation of the Gemini 6 mission was a major disappointment. If you will recall way back in episode 13, the major mission objective of the entire Gemini program was to learn Rendezvous. Rendezvous was the linchpin to NASA's plan to use Lunar Orbital Rendezvous for the Apollo program. Without learning Rendezvous and proving that Rendezvous was possible in practice, Apollo would be dead in the water. Since March 1965, when the Gemini program began launching manned missions, NASA was slowly working its way toward achieving Rendezvous. The first manned mission, Gemini 3 in March 1965, was simply a three-orbit test mission for the spacecraft, making rendezvous virtually impossible to achieve during that mission. During Gemini 4, James McDivitt tried to rendezvous with the second stage of the Titan II rocket. But because NASA had not worked out orbital mechanics, he was never able to approach the rocket stage. During Gemini 5, a problem with the fuel cells caused Gordon Cooper to lose the purpose-built rendezvous evaluation pod. Cooper was able to practice only the maneuvers needed for rendezvous, a practice called phantom rendezvous. With the setbacks to rendezvous in the Gemini 4 and 5 missions, the pressure to achieve rendezvous during Gemini 6 mounted. This was especially so as the Agena spacecraft was finally ready. The contractor responsible for development of the Agena was Lockheed Martin. Lockheed, however, was having a difficult time qualifying the Agena which resulted in repeated delays to the use of that spacecraft in the Gemini missions. The principal problem with the Agena was the development of the engines. You see, Lockheed had actually been given the difficult task of building a rocket engine that was capable of stopping and restarting in space up to five times. This design specification posed some difficult engineering challenges. One big problem was ensuring that there was sufficient oxidizer. Normally, a rocket engine releases oxidizer into the combustion chamber and then releases the fuel. So on Earth, for most burning, the oxidizer is simply the atmosphere because fire can burn in our atmosphere. But in space where there is no atmosphere, the oxidizer is needed first so that the fuel can burn. To ensure smooth burning, the oxidizer has to be released into the combustion chamber first before the fuel. And the oxidizer continues flowing into the combustion chamber a bit even after the engine has been shut off. This is to ensure that any remaining fuel is burnt. Otherwise, when the engine is turned on again, the oxidizer flowing into the combustion chamber could cause the engine to backfire like a car. Now, a car can survive a backfire, but a backfire in a rocket engine will probably cause it to explode. The problem that Lockheed faced then was ensuring that there was sufficient oxidizer to sustain five engine restarts without seriously compromising fuel and other design specifications. Lockheed had trouble delivering the Agena spacecraft ever since Charles Matthews took over the Gemini program back in 1962. Matthews had to repeatedly reshuffle the order of the Gemini missions due to delays in delivery. This, of course, resulted in the first spacewalk mission moving up to Gemini 4. By August 1965, however, two months before the Gemini 6 was scheduled to launch, Lockheed finally delivered the first Agena spacecraft to Cape Canaveral. This delivery was crucial as the Agena was incredibly important to the Gemini and Apollo programs, and not just because of Rendezvous. Gemini was supposed to actually dock with the Agena spacecraft, which was an added skill needed on top of simply Rendezvous. Once a Gemini spacecraft had docked with an Agena, NASA planned to use the extra fuel and more powerful engine offered by the Agena to boost a Gemini spacecraft into high orbit. These high-orbit missions would take the first humans beyond the Van Allen radiation belts to prove that humans could survive in space travel beyond the immediate confines of Earth. This was a necessity if NASA was to send astronauts ever further out toward the moon. NASA also planned to practice re-rendezvous by having a Gemini spacecraft leave the Agena and then come back to it, similar to what the Apollo lunar lander would have to do in lunar orbit. So, when the Agena was finally ready for the Gemini 6 mission, there was a lot riding on its success. The astronauts chosen for the historic Gemini 6 mission to achieve what would not only be the first rendezvous but the first docking mission in space were Wally Shearer and Thomas Stafford. Shearer was one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts. He had flown on Sigma 7 during the Mercury Atlas 8 mission. Stafford was one of the second-generation recruits from 1962. Gemini 6 would be Stafford's first mission to space. From the beginning, however, the Gemini 6 mission faced certain limitations. For one thing, there was still the power supply problem. As we saw with the Gemini 5 mission, the fuel cells were still being ironed out. Gemini 6 would be reliant entirely on battery power, though it will be the last Gemini mission to rely on batteries. Because of the reliance on batteries, however, Gemini 6's maximum mission duration was two days. But NASA hoped to complete the rendezvous and docking with the Agena on the first day And if that could be achieved, the mission objectives called for an early end to the mission, making all other experiments secondary goals. In addition, Gemini 6 would be limited to just a rendezvous and docking with the Agena. Shira and Stafford were not to fire the Agena's engines while docked. Although Lockheed had delivered the Agena for launch, NASA remained doubtful that the Agena's main engine would actually work. If something happened to the Agena's main engine, say a backfire, while Gemini 6 was still docked, it could damage Gemini 6 and create the possibility of the first fatalities in space. Shira fought against this limitation, but NASA's safety-first approach won the day. As it turns out, NASA was right to be skeptical about the readiness of the Agena spacecraft. Because on October 25, 1965, when they launched the Agena, the Agena exploded after the main engine turned on following separation from the Atlas rocket. News began to filter out that NASA had lost the Agena. Shira and Stafford, sitting inside the Gemini 6 spacecraft on Launch Pad 19, however, would continue sitting there for nearly another hour until their mission was officially canceled. Out in the viewing stands at Cape Canaveral's Launch Control Center, A new plan for rendezvous was already being hatched while Gemini 6's countdown was still technically going. In the viewing stands were Walter Burke, McDonnell Douglas's head of Gemini Spacecraft Development, and his deputy, John Yardley. Burke and Yardley immediately began discussing the possibility of performing a rendezvous with two Gemini spacecraft instead of an Agena spacecraft. The biggest problem to this plan was the turnaround time for launching the Gemini spacecraft. The last three Gemini missions showed that NASA was capable of launching a Gemini spacecraft about once every two months. But obviously a Gemini spacecraft and crew could not survive in orbit for two months, while NASA turned the launch pad around to send a second Gemini spacecraft into orbit. But, as it happened, the very next mission on the schedule, Gemini 7, was a long-duration flight of 14 days. Two astronauts, Frank Borman and James Lovell, were already preparing for this mission to launch sometime in December 1965. So now the question was whether a launch pad could be turned around fast enough to launch a second Gemini spacecraft while Gemini 7 was still in orbit on its 14-day mission. In fact, as the two McDonnell Douglas officials Burke and Yardley were talking about a rendezvous in the viewing stands for the Gemini 6 launch, Borman and Lovell were there as well. And these two astronauts loved this Gemini rendezvous proposal that the men from McDonnell Douglas had just cooked up on the spot. NASA's management, however, was not so hot about this idea at first. George Miller, the director of manned spaceflight, and Charles Matthews, the head of the Gemini program office, both doubted that the launch pad could be turned around for a second Gemini launch within two weeks, and their opinions carried a lot of weight. These were not people who were squeamish about improving launch schedules. Remember that Miller is the one who had been moving NASA toward all-up testing and the delivery of flight-ready articles to Cape Canaveral to speed up launch times. Matthews, meanwhile, was heading up Gemini, where one of the program goals was to make spacecraft launches more routine. Both men had been instrumental in bringing Gemini's launch schedule down to once every two months. So, their opinions that a two-week turnaround could not be done were important. A lot of study had already been put into improving turnaround times as part of the Gemini program. The most obvious solution was to have two different launch pads. This would allow two rockets and two spacecraft to be prepared for launch in parallel. In the early days of the Gemini program, multiple launch pads had been examined as a way to achieve missions like rendezvous, crew transfer in space, and to practice space rescue operations. At the end of the day, however, money was tight. NASA was able to invest in equipment only at one launch site, Launch Pad 19 to perform the manned Gemini launches. One alternative, which McDonnell Douglas now championed, was to use a helicopter to airlift a prepared rocket to Launch Pad 19. Specifically, this plan called for the preparation of two Titan II rockets in parallel. One would be prepared to launch on Launch Pad 19 for one of the Gemini missions, while another Titan II would be prepared at nearby Launch Pad 20. Once the first Gemini mission launched, a Sikorsky S-64 Skycrane helicopter would be brought in to lift the Titan II rocket on Launch Pad 20 over to Launch Pad 19. You might wonder why they couldn't just use some sort of heavy duty truck to transport the Titan II rocket on the ground. For example, today, SpaceX, operating at Launch Pad 39A, uses a rail system to transport a rocket from an assembly building to the Launch Pad. Once the rocket is at the Launch Pad, the rocket gets tilted 90 degrees from its side so it is standing up. For the Titan II rocket, however, the manufacturer, Aerojet, had insisted that once a Titan II is assembled and checked out, it has to remain standing. So using a helicopter seemed like the only way. NASA, however, was not inclined to accept this risky option. Unable to convince NASA's program management, McDonnell Douglas tried to make allies of those in NASA's manned spaceflight operations, namely the director of the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Robert Gilruth, as well as his flight directors. Gilruth had the same initial reaction as Miller and Matthews. Flying two Gemini spacecraft at the same time, was not possible. But when he thought about it, he couldn't actually come up with a real reason why it wasn't possible. So he called in his deputy, George Lowe, who was closer to actual operations, and might be able to explain why flying two Gemini spacecraft at the same time wasn't possible. Lowe, like Gil Ruth thought this was a bad idea, but he couldn't articulate a reason why it was a bad idea. So then they went further down the totem pole, someone closer to actual operations. They asked flight director Christopher Kraft. He also said this was a bad idea, and then couldn't think of a reason why two Gemini spacecraft couldn't be flown at once. So, the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston wasn't opposed to the idea, even if they felt uneasy about it. At this point, only a day or so had passed since the scrubbed Gemini 6 mission, and already rumors were leaking to the press that NASA was considering a dual-flight mission with two Gemini spacecraft. NASA needed to act quickly. So Miller, who still did not like the idea, went up the management chain to Associate Administrator Robert Siemens, NASA's third highest ranking official. Siemens loved the idea. Siemens did have a history of willingness to be daring. Remember, he was a very early supporter of Lunar Orbital Rendezvous back when people like Gilruth still thought the idea was crazy. And Siemens favored pushing up the American spacewalk to Gemini 4 after the Soviet spacewalk in Voshad 2. So Siemens' willingness to support this daring plan to launch two Gemini spacecraft fit within his character but for something this big Siemens needed to run the idea even higher up to administrator James Webb and deputy administrator Hugh Dryden. On October 27th, 1965, still only 2 days after Gemini 6 was canceled, Webb, Dryden and Siemens discussed the proposal for a rendezvous mission with two Gemini spacecraft. Webb was interested in the idea, but he wanted to know if it was actually possible. So Webb called Gilruth directly and asked to confirm that NASA could launch and fly two Gemini spacecraft at the same time. Webb also made clear that Gilruth should be sure of his answer, because if the answer was yes, the mission was important enough that it should be announced by the White House. So Gilruth polled his team in Houston. The answer, yes. The next day, on October 28th, 1965, the White House press secretary made an announcement at President Johnson's ranch in Texas, where the president was working. The ranch was also incidentally known as the Texas White House. There, the press secretary announced that NASA would be performing the first rendezvous using Gemini 7 and what was now dubbed Gemini 6A. NASA was now committed. The announcement of this mission, only three days after Gemini 6 was cancelled, illustrates just how confident NASA had become about its capabilities after those tenuous days not that long ago, back in 1960 in the early part of the Mercury program, when everything seemed to be going so wrong. Though politically committed, the operational problem remained. How was NASA going to turn around Launch Pad 19 for a second launch within the two-week window offered by Gemini 7's mission? The first step was actually to remove the Titan II rocket currently erected at Launch Pad 19. That Titan II rocket known specifically as Gemini Launch Vehicle 6, or GLV-6, had to be replaced with the Titan II rocket for the Gemini 7 mission, also known as GLV-7. You see, as I mentioned a few episodes ago, each Gemini spacecraft was slightly different. The same was also true of the Titan II rockets, fitted out for the Gemini launches. In this case, Gemini 7 was about 100 kilograms heavier than Gemini 6. NASA had done the math to see if they could save time by simply launching Gemini 7 with GLV-6. But the math showed that Gemini 7 wouldn't get the orbit they wanted using GLV-6. So, they had to take that rocket down, and then erect GLV-7 to launch Gemini 7 first. Once Gemini 7 was launched, the plan was to turn Launch Pad 19 around for Gemini 6 in only 9 days. In order to make this happen, repairs to Launch Pad 19 would have to begin almost literally right after Gemini 7 took off. NASA also prepared to re-erect GLV-6 and mate Gemini 6 to that rocket in one day. As if the plan for the Gemini 7-6A mission was not ambitious enough, Wally Shira and Thomas Stafford wanted to do more. Shira and Stafford were to fly on Gemini 6A, and they thought, as long as they were doing a rendezvous with Gemini 7, why not attempt a crew transfer as well? They pitched the idea as a demonstration of a potential rescue operation in space. After all, Gemini 6 was the spacecraft designed originally to perform an EVA as one of its major mission objectives. Frank Borman, however, the commander of the Gemini 7 mission, pushed back on the proposal. Bormann was focused on achieving the endurance record with a 14-day mission in space. He did not want any other objectives being added that might derail this mission goal. Besides this point, a crew transfer did present some significant risks. In order to transfer from one spacecraft to another, at some point, an astronaut will have to disconnect himself from his spacecraft's life support hose. Then, operating only on the spacesuit's backup systems, he would have to rush over to the other spacecraft and get the other spacecraft's life support hose connected to him before he ran out of air. One slip, or one missed connection, and an astronaut would be dead. NASA Headquarters shot down the idea. They thought the plan was too risky and not worth the headlines. They were especially reluctant to approve the idea when they considered that Stafford was one of the taller astronauts. Remember that back in episode 33, I mentioned the seats in the Gemini spacecraft had originally been designed around the five foot five Gus Grissom. But Stafford was 6 feet tall. And during EVA practice on the ground, he already had trouble getting in and out of the spacecraft so they definitely weren't going to try this novel crew-transfer mission with Stafford. On December 4th, 1965, the first part of the Momentous Rendezvous mission began. Gemini 7 with Frank Borman and James Lovell lifted off from Launch Pad 19. Once in orbit, Borman turned the spacecraft around and managed to station-keep near the second stage of the Titan II Booster. Remember that James McDivitt had tried, and failed, to achieve this goal during Gemini 4. So, if you want to be super technical about it, Gemini 7 technically achieved the first rendezvous on its own, by meeting up with the Booster Rocket. But since Gemini 7 just turned around, and it didn't really have to go very far to achieve this rendezvous, no one wants to celebrate this comparatively little feat as the first rendezvous, given what will happen next. So in the history books, I only ever see this being referred to as a station-keeping effort. In any event, after station-keeping for 15 minutes, Frank Borman moved Gemini 7 away from the booster, as the booster started to spin erratically. Borman maneuvered Gemini 7 into a circular orbit, mimicking that of an Agena spacecraft, and then they waited for Gemini 6A. Meanwhile, Borman and Lovell settled into their long two-week mission in space. As we saw with the four-day mission of Gemini 4 and the eight-day mission of Gemini 5, the astronauts were still trying to figure out how to eat, sleep, and work effectively in space inside a cramped spacecraft. With 14 days on their hands, Gemini 7 offered the best opportunity to try to work these spacecraft operations issues out. Like Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad on Gemini 5, Borman and Lovell decided to adopt the same cycles. They would work, eat, and sleep at the same time to avoid waking the other up. A major operational change for Gemini 7 was the decision to stop scheduling activities for specific times. In the past, flight control had mandated that specific activities and experiments occur at specific times. But in the past missions, the astronauts found that these activities often interrupted other tasks that regularly come up during the operation of a spacecraft, like maintaining the spacecraft's orientation or equipment checks. So, for Gemini 7, flight control provided the astronauts with an outline of activities rather than a specific schedule. The astronauts would then perform these activities whenever there was an opportunity during the day. On board Gemini 7 were 20 experiments. Given the duration of the mission, eight of these experiments were medical in nature. They included a study of calcium intake by the astronauts and sleep analysis. One other problem that the astronauts addressed was trash storage. This had been identified as a problem after the eight-day mission of Gemini 5. NASA worked out that the astronauts should be able to keep about one week's worth of trash behind each seat. One major development for the Gemini 7 mission was new, more lightweight, and more comfortable spacesuits. Once again, this was a blessing in light of the length of the mission. But the spacecraft life support system actually worked better without spacesuits. So the plan was that if all went well, by day two of the mission, flight control would allow one of the two astronauts to remove their spacesuit entirely, except during mission critical phases like rendezvous when both would have to wear their spacesuit. Otherwise, only one would have to wear the spacesuit in case of an emergency. But the order from flight control for one of the astronauts to continue wearing their spacesuit throughout the mission was not taken well by the astronauts. James Lovell was the first to remove his suit, and he reported being very comfortable. After that, Borman, who remained in his spacesuit, complained that he was sweating profusely even though he had unzipped the spacesuit and his gloves were off. Borman and Lovell did switch off being the one responsible for wearing the suit. But six days into the mission, Borman asked flight control to just give up and let them both keep the spacesuit off. Because George Miller had been the one to require that one of the astronauts remain in the spacesuit at all times, This request had to go all the way back up to NASA Headquarters. Headquarters did relent after medical data showed that the astronauts' blood pressure and pulse rates were closer to normal when they weren't wearing the spacesuits. Back on the ground, NASA quickly turned Launch Pad 19 around for the launch of Gemini 6A. In fact, they moved so quickly that Gemini 6A was ready to launch a day earlier than planned on December 12, 1965, only 8 days after Gemini 7 had launched. This launch attempt however did not go well. After Shira and Stafford boarded the Gemini 6A, the countdown proceeded smoothly. Right on time, the Titan II booster ignited and the mission clock started, indicating that they had successfully begun liftoff. But, just as quickly, the rocket shut down. The malfunction detection system had identified an issue and turned the rocket off. Now, Shira and Stafford were in a potentially disastrous situation. Shira and Stafford were effectively sitting on top of a potential bomb. Ground rules dictated that Shira, as the spacecraft commander, should have punched the emergency escape switch and the astronauts should have been ejected from the spacecraft. But Shira's gut instinct was that the rocket was fine. Neither he nor Stafford had actually felt the rocket move, despite the mission clock starting. If he was right, and the rocket hadn't lifted off even a little, then there should be no structural damage to the rocket. Shira's failure to activate the ejection seats in this case later led some in NASA to question whether any astronaut would ever use the ejection seats. You see, it's really unlikely, and probably impossible, to walk away from an ejection without injury. An ejection seat will probably save your life, but as any fighter pilot knows, you'll likely sustain back injuries, and these injuries can be so serious that you'll never fly again. So if Shira had activated the ejection seats Even if he and Stafford were super lucky and did not sustain serious injury, they almost certainly would not be well enough to try another launch attempt to meet Gemini 7 in the next few days. In any event, after the rocket shut down, Shearer and Stafford made safe the spacecraft by turning off any pyrotechnics and then they were retrieved from the spacecraft. The failure to launch Gemini 6A was a disappointment. And now, NASA had only six days to figure out what the problem was and make Launch Pad 19 ready again for another launch attempt. A full inspection of the rocket later found that a dust cap Had accidentally been left on one of the rocket engine's gas generators during cleaning, and this had caused the engine to shut down. Three days later, on December 15th, 1965, Shira and Stafford were back inside their spacecraft trying to launch for the third time. This time, third time was the charm. Gemini 6a entered orbit, and for the next six hours, Shira made one maneuver after another to slowly match Gemini 7's orbit and then close. Five hours into the endeavor, Shira reported seeing a very bright star and he thought it might be serious. It was in fact Gemini 7, only 100 kilometers away. Gemini 6a slowly coasted to within 40 meters of Gemini 6. The two spacecraft then coasted along in orbit with no relative motion between them. The first rendezvous ever had been achieved. This was a historic moment. The major mission objective of the entire Gemini program had been accomplished. Lunar orbital rendezvous for the Apollo program was not impossible nor crazy. And on the symbolic level, it was fitting that it should be two spacecraft of the same production line named after the astrological sign for twins that should be the ones to achieve the first rendezvous. You can see photos of this very historic moment on SpaceRaceHistoryPodcast.com or in the link in the episode description. With this goal achieved, Gemini 6A continually maneuvered around Gemini 7 and practiced station keeping from different positions. Because Gemini 7 had been in orbit for 11 days now, Borman and Lovell were much shorter on fuel; they only had about eleven percent of their fuel supply left. So Gemini Seven didn't do any maneuvering, while Shera and Stafford virtually buzzed around them in Gemini Six A. She-Ra found that maneuvering around Gemini Seven at close range was so easy that the future goal of docking with an Agena spacecraft did not appear to be a difficult task. While the two spacecraft traveled together, there was one other historic moment. Stafford said he saw something heading north to south around the Earth in polar orbit right outside his window. He said it might be a satellite, and it appeared to be going for re-entry. I've actually got an audio clip of when Stafford reported this sighting. So I'll play that for you so you hear what happens next. Roger, Houston 7, this is Jiminy 6. Uh, we have an object, looks like a satellite, uh, going from north to south, pumping a polar orbit. Uh, he's in a very low trajectory, traveling from north to south. It uh, has a very high fineness ratio. Looks like it might even be a ball of steam. It's very low. Looks like maybe one than 300 feet. Uh, a by one. It might nice. looks like he's driving a stick with it. So in a historic verse, the astronauts saw Santa Claus just 10 days before Christmas. Obviously, Santa Claus was preparing for the delivery of Christmas gifts around the world. And if you're wondering about what that sound was at the end, that was Stafford playing jingle bells on his harmonica to celebrate. With Rendezvous achieved. Shearer and Stafford broke off in Gemini 6a, and returned home only after a little over a day in orbit. They successfully re-entered the atmosphere, landing only 13 kilometers from the intended landing point. With the departure of Shearer and Stafford, Borman and Lovell in Gemini 7 found that their morale collapsed. They realized that waiting for Gemini 6A to rendezvous with them had kept their spirits up with something to look forward to. Now that Gemini 6A was gone, Borman and Lovell had to remain for another three days in space with nothing to keep them going. The spacecraft also began showing signs of strain this far into the mission they discovered that two of Gemini 7's thrusters had failed. Later investigation would show that this was because the thrusters installed used Rocketdyne's old design for the ablative material, which ran perpendicular to the thrust and therefore wore down more quickly, as I explained back in episode 30. Then those fuel cells began acting up again, The warning light for the fuel cells kept turning on and threatened to burn out their power entirely. Finally, on December 18th, 1965, 14 days after their mission began, Borman and Lovell began re-entry and returned home. They successfully splashed down in Gemini 7 only 11.8 kilometers away from their target, showing a progressive improvement toward pinpoint landing. Post-flight medical examination of Borman and Lovell showed the same kind of data as the prior Gemini missions. They were tired, they had lost red blood cells, and gained a lot of blood plasma, and they had lost some bone mass. But overall, they were fine within a few days. Manned spaceflight was biologically safe. The mission of Gemini 7 and 6A in December 1965 was the capstone to a series of historic Gemini missions in 1965 starting with Gemini 3. Not only had NASA achieved the first rendezvous in history, but they had blown the Soviet Union's five-day endurance record from Vostok 5 out of the water. These dual missions will subsequently be referred to as the Spirit of '76, a reference to the Spirit of the American Revolution in 1776. At this point, it has been over eight years since Sputnik sparked what would become the Space Race. And at this point in the Space Race, enough time has passed that people's careers and lives are starting to reach an end. Shortly before the Gemini 7-6A mission, on December 2, 1965, one of these people, Hugh Dryden, passed away after a battle with cancer. Dryden had a long and storied career. He had been the director of NASA's predecessor, NACA, for over a decade before NASA was founded in 1958. He then served as NASA's deputy administrator until his passing, ensuring a level of continuity and certainty during the transition. He had been a reliable advisor to three presidents throughout the space race, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson. Since I have been focused on the Gemini missions taking place in 1965, I've started to leave us pretty far behind in the Soviet side of the space race. So next time, I'll take us back to the Soviet Union, where Sergei Korolev is firming up plans for a Soviet lunar landing.